The Silk Road gets its name from the lucrative Chinese silk trade, a major reason for the connection of trade routes into an extensive transcontinental network connecting Asia with the Mediterranean world. The origins of the Silk Road go back to 500 BC. Since then, a number of major trading routes have developed, both maritime as well as overland. The Silk Road is responsible for the transmission and transformation of so much; it's hard to think about where to begin. Many artistic influences were transmitted via the road, particularly through Central Asia, where Hellenistic, Iranian, Indian, and Chinese influences could intermix, and Greco-Buddhist art represents one of the most vivid examples of this interaction. Buddhism itself was transmitted via the road. This began in the first century A.D., according to a semi-legendary account of an ambassador sent to the West by the Chinese Emperor Ming. During this period, Mahayana, Theravada, and Tibetan Buddhism are three primary forms of the religion that spread throughout Southeast, East, and Central Asia, all thanks to the Silk Road. I had a burning desire to explore the culture of these routes. But couldn't think of an economical way to do it, so I turned to Sima Bhatia, a local chef caterer here in Hong Kong, and asked for her help. Sima suggested that perhaps the best way to satisfy my hunger for the culture of these regions was to delve into its food journeys. My experience with the Silk Route is、uh, I've, I've traveled to Greece. I love Greece.、Um, I'm I have Punjabi roots, which is North Indian. And I'm living in Hong Kong, and I, it somewhat coincides in, with my journey on a plate, Africa to Asia, a culinary safari that journeys between two continents.、Um, again, spices, cooking, inventing.、Uh, the food story is a story of cultures, religion, immigration, and integration. It's a beautiful story that tells a tale of its own. So we gathered a group of food enthusiasts. Who had spent significant time in the lands along this route? This is what we look at on Asian Threads today: the modern Silk Road and the story of food, how it journeys from one land to another and changes along the way. Asian Threads. Asian Threads. Spinning the tales of Asian communities and cultures, their personal accounts, their history, and their literature. This program is sponsored by the Wing Foundation. Major step in opening the Silk Road between the East and the West came with the expansion of Alexander the Great's empire into Central Asia. That was back in 329 BC, when he founded the city of Alexandria as Chet at the mouth of the Fergana Valley in Tajikistan. This later became a major staging point on the northern route, which starts at what is today Xi'an in China and stretches across the Karakoram Desert. 
to the Persian countries. A route for caravans, the Northern Silk Road brought much to China, goods such as dates, saffron powder and pistachios from Persia, frankincense, aloe and myrrh from Somalia, sandalwood from India, glass bottles from Egypt, and other expensive and desirable goods from other parts of the world. In exchange, the caravans sent back bolts of silk brocade, lacquer ware and porcelain. Located on the edge of the Eastern world, Greece was a major player in the commerce of valuable textile. The Greek merchants developed a maritime silk route, which eventually led to silk manufacturing in their own homeland. But another thing that has traveled extensively along the Silk Road from Greece is its lamb stew or stifato. Sima prepared this slow-cooked lamb stew with onions, wine and a tomato sauce and also a beautiful combination of spices such as cinnamon, cloves and bay leaves, making it purely vibrant. This is a slow-cooked, very bold lamb dish. It's a slow simmered in red wine. It has uh, spice elements that are stronger than Turkish. We've got cloves, we've got bay, we've got cinnamon. And I've taken on the traditional method of cooking this stew, which is slow simmering it in a clay pot. Dan Maney, who used to work for the Mandarin Oriental Group, likens the Greek stifato to lamb roganjosh or other Indian dishes further along the Silk Road. To me, it really totally recalls um, almost like an, a reinterpreted version of um, North Indian roganjosh and naan. And, um, and those are the flavors that were coming out. And going back to you know the interaction between Greece and North India, obviously you had... Um, Alexander the Great's Empire, more Macedonian to be more precise. And um, two of the key ingredients in the stifaho are cinnamon and cloves, neither which are Greek at all. Uh, cinnamon is from, from Sri Lanka originally and cloves from Indonesia. So again, just showing how spices have actually moved uh, across all the way from South Asia to, um, to, you know, Southeastern Europe. Jenny Marsh, an editor at the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, said that the dish conjured an entirely different kind of memory for her. What's interesting about this is seeing how these spices and foods have traveled the spice route, because this dish really reminded me of being in Xi'an at the Muslim food market. And one of the things that I tried there, which I never thought I would try in China, was this mutton curry that was slow cooked in this big clay pot with unleavened bread. And I was really surprised because I'd gone to China to discover about China and I thought of it as a really homo homogenous society where it was Chinese food and Chinese people. And I didn't realize you would have a Muslim food market in somewhere like Xi'an. I thought you had terracotta soldiers and Chinese people. That's what you found in Xi'an. Um, and it was great. It was like the best thing that I found in that city. And there are about 20,000 Muslim people living in Xi'an, which I would never realize. And when you think about, I didn't think about how did they get there and how did they arrive and how did all this amazing food come there? And then when you start looking at things like the Silk Route, and it's amazing to think that it didn't even perhaps come from India, it came from Greece, that kind of food, and everyone's passing their different foods along. I think that's the really interesting thing about this kind of food as a story.
But even with dishes as delicious as the lamb stifato, Greece will turn some people vegetarian. Pete Spurrier, the editor of Blacksmith Books here in Hong Kong, turned vegetarian in Greece at the tender age of 18 when he was living in a cave. A cave is warmer than camping out on the hillside during the winter. It's a bit of insulation. Um, to walk from our cave to the village to do our orange picking every morning, uh, we had to walk past a chicken farm, and uh, a chicken abattoir, quite possibly, and the smell from that chicken farm was quite something. So I thought, oh, I'm not going to eat chicken for the next few weeks, and then I thought, oh, I feel better. I might not eat any meat either. I couldn't afford meat either at the time. I was living in a cave. So I, I just went out and bought lots of pasta and vegetables at the local market, brought them back to the cave, started cooking with those, liked it, and it's been 20 years now, no meat. So you came to Hong Kong and it didn't tempt you to sort of break that? I, I, it, actually, it did. I, on my way along the Silk Road, I couldn't find food for quite a long period of time. Uh, in the new stands, which had been set up after the Soviet Union fell, you know, all the... Um, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, um, you know, there's so many stans. In, in those countries, the, the Soviet Union had just fell, fallen, um, and there was no more directions coming from Moscow. No more food, no more water. Actually, the taps were dry in, in the buildings. Turn the tap, no water. Um, the food shops were empty every day because um, Russia stopped supplying them. They didn't actually want independence, I think it just happened. Uh, so I didn't eat at one point for over a week. I didn't eat anything. Um, so I actually crossed into China just to escape this sort of place of extreme poverty. Um, and then as, as I crossed the border, there was someone, I hadn't seen food for a week. Uh, apart from I had one uh, bulb of garlic in my backpack, so I had one clove every day just to put something in my stomach. Um, I crossed, you know, obviously very hungry. I crossed the border. On the other, I, there was a big no man's land between Kazakhstan and China. On the other side, we just got through passport control, and there was a man um, stir frying beef and green peppers in the street. So I had a big plate of that, and it was the first thing I'd eaten in a week, and it was uh, the first meat I'd eaten in in years. Yeah, and I've, I haven't done it since, but I think I think that there were extenuating circumstances. Oftentimes, being vegetarian in a country like Greece can be a problem. Chrysanthi Desby is a chamber music coach at the San Francisco University High School. Although she grew up in L.A., she's ethnically 100% Greek. And here's what she had to face one year when she took her vegetarian husband and kids back to Greece to meet the relatives. The very first time we went to Greece... Um, I was a teenager. My brothers came as well. Of course, there was five of us. And we'd seen pictures of all these relatives. We'd heard all about them. They were my grandmother's uh, brothers and sisters, mainly, that we were going to go see. So we arrive at the airport, and the first people we see are my grandmother's youngest sister and one of her brothers. She was one of many children. I'm still not sure how many. And they were all from Crete, but had uh, moved to Athens. And the next thing I know, you know, we cross the barrier from the uh, little uh, de-embarking area to this spot where they were all waiting. We saw them smiling, and the next thing I knew, I was enveloped in this enormous bear hug by this woman I'd only seen in photographs. 
and she was my height, but about three feet wider. <laughs> and, and as far as she was concerned, I was, I was hers. And, uh, there was, it was really tough to communicate. They spoke no English. They, uh, they just communicated with love. So they took us home. They kept feeding us and feeding us and feeding us. Fast forward many, many years later, I bring my husband and my children. And my husband was vegetarian, so I had to look up the word for vegetarian. I didn't even know what it was. And literally translated, it comes out something like grass eater. So I told her, you know, Thea, um, my husband and children are grass eaters, and I'm a grass eater with them now. She looks at me, and I could see that she'd probably heard the word once in her life and was trying to remember what it exactly meant and and what what does it look like and here were four of them standing in front of her so she says oh well then you eat fish and i said no we don't eat fish she goes chicken no we don't eat chicken and by the way we can't eat feta my husband's allergic and he can't stand it, but you know, I couldn't tell her that. So she looks at me and she gave me that same look that I remember seeing in that, uh, my big fat Greek wedding movie, movie where she's explaining that her fiance is a vegetarian and the, the exact same look. She just looks at these people like they've landed from another planet and she sees my skinny husband and my two skinny children and she goes, well, darling, what do you eat? So I said, oh, well, you know, we eat. We eat uh, 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 pasta and uh, 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 beans and tomatoes. We, we eat everything else but rice. So she goes into the kitchen and she starts throwing the pots around. And she comes out and she had these four little teeny tiny dishes. I don't know why, but they were, they were like bread-sized dishes for serving bread. But each of them was piled four inches high with food, covered. You couldn't see the rim of the dish. And she proceeds to put one in front of each of us and I said Thea there's there's no way we can eat all this food that's that's way too much food and she looks at me and she looks at my husband and examines my children and starts screaming at me saying you you should be ashamed of yourself you are starving your husband and you are starving your children and look at you you're too thin you are going to eat every single bite right now you sit down and you eat it so I, I looked at my husband, I looked at my kids, I said, I think we have to eat as much as we can, and I can't help you. I'm sorry. So that was their introduction to Greece, to my family.
Located in both continents of Asia and Europe, the ancient land of Turkey is certainly a bridge between the East and the West. Once the center of Christianity, from the 11th century, Turkoman armies coming out of Central Asia made it the center of the Muslim world. Modern Turkey aspires to be a part of Europe. It has a functioning democracy with constitutional freedom of religion. 20% of the current population of 76 million are Kurds. After decades of instability and mismanagement, there has been a recent upsurge in the economy, allowing for the emergence of an urban middle class. Pete Spurrier tells us that he decided to follow the Silk Road all the way to Turkey after his time in Greece. I was living in a cave in Greece for the winter, uh, picking oranges for um, uh, uh, you know to earn money to move on with. I met an Irish um, backpacker of about 65 years old who'd been following the orange harvest around for years, a bit of an alcoholic. His family sent him money every year to come home for Christmas. He spent that on more more arak and everything. And uh, one day I was sitting with him outside the village shop in this little Greek village, uh, drinking their wine that they made on the premises. And he said, "Oh, you might as well have this. I'm never going to use it." And he pulled out this map from his satchel. It was the um, Daily Express 1977 map of the Middle East, and he'd been travelling with it all, all this time. Uh, it was all falling apart. I thought, oh, thanks. But I looked, and, and it extended onto the Silk Road, uh, extended to the cities of Samarkand and Bukhara. And I thought, oh, they sound interesting. Like, is that where Alexander the Great went? That might be interesting. So I went to the local library uh, in, in this in nearby Greek town, read up a little bit more. I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll just follow the Silk Road and go further east. I've made some money picking oranges. I'll do that. Yeah. So I went to Istanbul. And then I stood on. Actually, you can stand on the balcony of the Top Kapa Palace uh, yeah. on on the Bosphorus. There, you can look across the Asian side. So I thought, okay, here's the edge of Europe. <laughs> I'm um, looking at Asia. I'm just going to see how far into it I can go and how much adventure I can have. Perhaps the most memorable thing about his experience there was the hospitality of the people. Actually, in Turkey, I found the people were so incredibly friendly. It was impossible to have any time on your own. I was hitchhiking mostly, and that was very easy. Uh, often, in, in some parts of the world, you'll stick your thumb out, and they'll say where they're going, and you'll say, "Great, I'll come along with you." In Turkey, you stick your thumb out, and they will say, "Where do you want to go?" Uh, so, and I didn't know where I wanted to go. I was just traveling randomly. So I, I went across Turkey. Um, I would sometimes get on buses, and then I go to pay my fare, and the driver would say, "No, no, no, he's already paid for you." And someone at the back of the bus would wave and smile. You know, very, very lovely country. So, but no downtime. That's not where you want to go if you want downtime. Is that what I'm getting? Downtime. Time by yourself, away no. from nuclear family, relatives, you know, no. bosses. No, it's a very friendly country. So I, I, I would like to sit and write my diary sometimes. So I'd often sit in a park and write my diary. But a crowd of people come along and start asking who I was and what I was doing. Um, one time, I got a crowd of people and a policeman come along, and, and I thought, what, what, what is, is this going to be trouble? And he, he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, just writing my diary. He said, oh, okay. He went across to a restaurant, got me a chair, brought it out to the middle of the park, so I sat on a chair. A waiter from the restaurant came out and gave me glass of tea. Um, I, I didn't get much diary written because it was just too sociable. I do like the street food. Uh, I did like the, um, if you go down to the harbour, they, they slap an entire roasted fish inside of lo loaf of bread for you with slices of lemon. And that's great, you just eat it on the spot. Um, they do the fermented um, milk drink, uh, fermented yogurts, is, is that what you call it? Which is very refreshing on, on a hot day. Ice cold Iran, is that the name? Uh, salty yogurt, which is very tasty actually.
Like the Greek, the Turks certainly loved the luxuries of the Orient and did what they could to keep them coming. They improved their roads and built hundreds of beautiful caravanserais to encourage trade with the East. With the rise of the Ottoman Empire, trade flourished, and as soon as Ottoman power secured control of the surrounding waters, most of its commerce moved to the sea. Sarah Pringle is an art consultant here in Hong Kong. Here's her take on some of the art and architecture that she was privy to during her journeys to Turkey. Being fortunate enough to have arrived there in the sort of uh, 1980s, and they were just building the sort of catacombs, the, the access, the public at- access to the catacombs, and we were st- staying in a hostel near the Blue Mosque. Um, all that very beautiful, and somebody said, "Oh no, you've got to come, come." We show you this is going to be open. We'll be open soon, and just having that wonderful opportunity where we were the only people um, to see all of the sort of water uh, tanks there in uh, under the city in Istanbul. And it's just sort of phenomenal the architecture and um, infrastructure that was established there during the Ottoman Empire. But to see it in its sort of more, as, as Dan was saying earlier, and its sort of shambolic. Um, stage was was really quite wonderful and then to go back there recently this summer where now as you said it has been celebrated and they're very much celebrating their history and their place and I and you often hear quoted that it is now the rise of the Ottoman Empire and I think in many cases the Turks really feel that um, and it's you know the evidence of that is is on the streets and they're celebrating things that are Turkish as opposed to I don't know, perhaps, uh, I don't know what it, what it was like when we were there, Pete, these years. It was, it was sort of decaying and, uh, yeah, diff- diff- different political time. But, um, yeah, that, that was my experience. But I suppose my only funny story to do with food is, is going out there with my children. We were there on a sort of family holiday, husband and children and sisters and their children, and deciding we'd all dressed up to go to dinner um, and then wandering down the streets and suddenly being confronted with uh, about sort of 20 or 30 riot police with shields and truncheons and, and a big tanks with water guns, thinking, okay, possibly we might go back. But as Pete was saying, they are the most friendly, wonderful people. And the Turkish people, immediately everyone is out. And immediately they're all guiding us away going, okay, think you should probably come this way and we were sort of take it, taken away and you know ended up in a sort of lovely restaurant and it, everything was all wonderful it was good apart from my husband and, and brother-in-law getting water cannoned on their way home because they were trying to see which route we could get back to the hotel but that was a sort of tax in square um, as we all know the politics have been happening To centrally transport us to Turkey, Sima prepared for us the Turkish babunya pilaki, stewed barlotti beans, served hot or cold with a slice of lemon. The barbunya pilaki is traditionally served cold, although today I'm serving it warm. It's a beautiful dish that is uh, slow simmered in olive oil, onions, carrots and tomatoes. However, what I did observe while traveling along the Silk Route as you go along from Europe gently going into Asia, 
the level of spices tends to get stronger and stronger. There are stronger elements. There's more rosemary, there's more onion, there's more clove, there's more cinnamon. So there's more depth to the dishes. Dan Maney suggests that the food of Turkey wasn't always as rich as it is today. Basically, when I went uh, to Turkey, and I, I love history, so I've done some research, and um, the people who you know, founded the Ottoman Empire came from Central Asia, and their food was pretty spartan, and obviously, being semi-desert, not many sort of fresh ingredients per se, uh, they managed to conquer, you know, break the walls down of, of the then Constantinople and enter as, as conquerors. And um, I think they were astounded by the level of sophistication of the, the you know, the, the empire as it was then. And their own empire expanded right throughout North Africa and the Middle East and uh, parts of Europe. And I think what happened is they, they sort of it, uh, absorbed... Uh, items, for example, the full mestam from Egypt or um, from other cultures like Syria has had a, a culinary history for more than 3,000 years and created a, a brand new cuisine, the, the Ottoman cuisine, which had heavily borrowed from their subjugated peoples, uh, simply because their own cuisine was not much to, it was, it was not an imperial cuisine by any standards. So you used to have this, you were saying, though, in Egypt in the mornings. Yes, they, they have it in, in Egypt in the morning for breakfast uh, because it's quite cool. Uh, the desert gets very cold at night, surprisingly enough. Uh, it's the first thing in the morning. It's always served hot and it's uh, to wake people up, uh, almost like the equivalent of a, a nice uh, English fry-up. But the, the interesting thing is, even if we look at the ingredients of what we've just had, uh, you've got lemon which people always uh, think was a Mediterranean fruit, uh, whereas it actually originated from northeast India and Burma, so in present-day Assam and Burma. Uh, we have parsley, which is actually from uh, Tunisia and Algeria, and uh, the balotti beans themselves were actually um, cultivated in, in Italy. So already you've got a dish which you know looks and, and tastes Turkish, uh, but ingredients have actually come from quite far. So it, it's not native Oh my gosh. No, the dish is certainly not native, but it's become native. Uh, I guess the, the equivalent in Hong Kong would be if you go to a Cha Chan Teng and then you have your, um, the sort of, you know, the macaroni noodle soup. People think of that as very Hong Kong, but obviously ingredients, uh, stem from the Second World War. about gotten into the thick of our Silk Road journey, but here we are already at the end of the program. Next week, we'll continue our food exploration along this historic route to see what we can find in Tibet, India, and then up into China. Stay tuned and join us same time, same place, right here on Radio 3. Asian Threads, Asian Threads is sponsored by the Wing Foundation.